Ahoy, and welcome to Undertow, being the discussion of piracy, literature, and all things nautical, recorded on the Isle of Nassau in the Wild West Indies. I'm your host, Donnie Knowles. Today we're introduced to Nicholas Budsberg and Charles Bendig, nautical archaeologists visiting from America with big plans for a certain shipwreck. We also get into the ethics of treasure hunting, mixing art and archaeology, and what they hope to accomplish here in the Bahamas with their Converging Worlds project. If you're inspired to contact them and want to see what you can do to help, just tap the link in the show notes. Let's dive in. We're here with Nicholas Budsberg, nautical archaeologist and doctoral student at Texas A&M. Hello, Nicholas. Hello. You prefer Nick or Nicholas? Um, Nicholas is fine. Nicholas it yeah, is. Yeah, sounds more formal. I agree. Sound professional. And we're also here with Charles Bendig. Hello. Who is another nautical archaeologist and doctoral student. Is that true? It is true. Okay, good. And y'all are principal investigator and co-principal investigator of the Converging Worlds project? Yes, yes. It's a project that's looking to excavate a shipwreck here in the Bahamas. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's located off a of Highborn Key, and it was a, an early site uh, that was found back in the 1960s, and then some work was done on the 1980s, and so we're returning, well, 50 years since the first discovery and 30 years since the last work was done to do a full excavation and see if we can't answer more questions. And I hear you are also interested in fighting treasure hunting, is that true? Yes, well that's the other side. Uh, Archaeologists are kind of at odds with treasure hunting because we have two very different approaches to cultural heritage and who owns the past and what it's there for. All of that and more coming up. So, Nicholas, tell us about being a nautical archaeologist. (laughs) Oh, it's, I think, the best career you could have. Um, (laughs) I've been doing this for, well, six years now or so. Uh, finishing up our work, and we've gotten to travel all over the world. Dove on shipwrecks that are 2,000 years old, some that are 100, 200 years old, and things in between. But you get to see some remarkable material under the sea, and it's amazing how much stuff has really survived out there. What is it about shipwrecks? Uh, That's a good question. There's some mystique that they hold uh, that has always kept my interest in this. Uh, But the real value seems to be when you start getting into the historical record and the archaeology and you realize how much you can, you can learn from something that's so old. Mm. Um, but yeah, it really connects you to the past and, and gives a lot of value and meaning to us and the ones that came before. And Yeah, it's a really great thing to be able to be a part of. Do you agree? Shipwrecks? Good? Bad? <laughs> Shipwrecks are fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, like Nick Can't said, be that good if they're under the ocean. Uh, well, I, <laughs> we do study a lot of failures. Yeah, I heard there's a lot of ships that worked. Uh, <laughs> Touche, sir. Great point you've made. We're not interested in those. those yeah. The successful ones, no. Yeah. The less successful ones are the most interesting. They're the cool indie ships. It is cool, cool indie ships, <laughs> let me tell you. I mean, the best part about these shipwrecks being underwater is it's just a totally different world down there. Mm. Um, you're not just experiencing history, but you're experiencing biota. All the different fish and coral and living and understanding truly what happened in this day and age and then back then. So it's just a fantastic thing to do every single day of our lives. Yeah, that is, because I, I remember I started diving recently and I was struck by just the density of life underwater, yeah. you know? Because mm-hmm. when I'm, you're walking around on land, you're pretty much like a rabbit and that'll be the most <laughs> exciting thing you can see around, you know? <laughs> At least to me. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, let's think about it. Most of our world is part of the ocean. Mm-hmm. I mean, and so a lot of stuff is under the ocean. And what not, why can't archaeologists go also in the ocean to work as long as everyone else does as well? So, yeah. And we kind of, well, as land lovers, we generally look at the ocean, we see a surface, and we kind of ignore what lies beneath. But once you get below that, there is an immense amount of, of life, of culture, of heritage, of our, our past. And 
Yeah, it's a beautiful thing down there, especially in the Bahamas. I mean, oh, it's, yes. It's very hard to complain when you have 100 feet visibility, warm water. Well, let's be real here. Life it might be warm. 85 feet one day. Yeah, that's oh, the bad news. Why even bother? <laughs> <laughs> of course. Of course. Now, so what is, it, what is it, before we get into it, what is it like to dive in places besides the ocean? Oh, wow. That's a good question. Like lakes or caves or have you... They, there's a lot of differences. Um, I've gotten to dive in a river in Florida on a very early site, and this was called a Blackwater River. Mm-hmm. Like tenons are in the river from the tree roots that are kind of degrading. And it's the same kind of thing you get in wine that makes that deep red color. Oh. And so you'll go down just a, a couple of inches. You can put your hand underneath the surface, and it's blood red after a couple inches, and it's completely gone after four inches or so. It's just a complete black world down there. And so you're doing everything by feel. Mm -hmm. Uh, You you bring down lights, but uh, they don't provide that much illumination at the Mm -hmm. end of it all. So, yeah, a lot of it, you're you're reaching into the darkness and messing around with things and doing your best to kind of control your measures and where you're at. Uh, But it's a very different experience. Now, there must be so much gator danger in that sort of thing. (laughs) That that was part of what we were doing there. Uh, We were swimming around one day, kind of getting ready to dive, and there's luckily a mini uh, alligator. I think we have alligators or crocodiles. Sure, alligators. Alligators, thank you. Uh, and he was just one on the surface, and I mean, to the other crews, it was, oh, no, just just ignore him, he's fine. <laughs> and here I am just freaking out as I'm surrounded by alligators, but... Long, long, like, to be honest, it can be spooky. It can be very, <laughs> be very spooky. spooky. Yeah. I mean, like, as Nicholas said, I've been also in plenty of rivers that are just full of tannic acid. And literally, there's a river I worked in called the Blackwater River. And cool. you go in there, and you need a flashlight. And with a flashlight, you can still see very far. But at the same time, everything is blood red, like Nicholas said, because it's just all the tannins from leaves and stuff, just biodegrading. Wow, different environments. Um, but when you go on a shipwreck in those environments, it could be very like magical and spooky at the same time. Because mm-hmm. your flashlight only goes so far, and then suddenly you turn, and there's a, a boiler. Or there might be some tubes that are part of the boiler, or mm-hmm. some of the machinery that you might be the first one to see hundreds of years that no one knew was even there. There was a shipwreck off of this river I'm describing, and it was a steamship. It had two paddle wheels amidship, and there's a couple archaeologists from the University of West Florida working, and they were doing survey, and they were showing some students how we do surveys, not archaeologists, well, and they found the shipwreck not knowing it was there. And so they went down for the first time. And this wreck seems to be a late, 18th, late 19th, early 20th century shipwreck. Mm-hmm. Um, so over 100 years old that no one knew it was there and people pass it on a daily basis. Wow. Now, I, don't know, I, and I, I recall that there's, there's some difficulty with how we relate shipwrecks to enormous intact ship in a bottles wedged into the sand down there. But that might not be how it actually is. <laughs> No, unfortunately, it's not how it is for most of the world. Mm-hmm. The only places in the world that you can really see what you see in Disney-esque type of shipwrecks mm-hmm. is probably either the Great Lakes, so mm-hmm. Lake Michigan for one example, or in the Baltic. And the reason for that is the Great Lakes are a freshwater environment, so the marine biota that actually eats the wood, uh, it's called Trader Nivalis is the scientific name for it, it's a type of mollusk, and it just loves to feast on wood. And so it thrives in most seawater, saltwater environments. But what makes the Great Lakes unique is it's freshwater, so it can't thrive there. Mm-hmm. And what makes the Baltic unique is because it has low salinity content. Mm-hmm. And so you can go there and see whole hulls still intact with mass still sticking up in the cold water. Wow. Mm-hmm. Well, that, well this, 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 this disintegration must make your job very difficult as shipwreck hunters. Oh, very true. Um, the vast majority of sites are uh, just usually lower hull remains and sometimes one side of a ship. Mm-hmm. Because a ship is kind of rounded after it sinks, it usually hits somewhere on the bottom and heels to one side or the other. 
And so a lot of the artifacts and things kind of spill over. And after a while, everything above a certain level just washes away. Mm -hmm. And so you're left, like the site we're looking at here, uh, they've estimated there's about 3 to 5% of the total ship left. Mm -hmm. uh, but that is the most we have for any uh, shipwreck of this early uh, discovery kind of exploration period. When people were first sailing around, trying to uh, first chart these regions and, mm -hmm. and meet and make contact and all of that. Uh, but yeah, it's, it, it's, it's quite remarkable how much you can get from so little. Yeah, what exactly? So when you go down there and you and you find one of these, the five percent of whatever ship is around, what what is it you're looking for to 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 bring up? And do you do you keep that stuff? Do you sell that stuff? How does how does all that work? No, that's a good question, and that's that's one of the big dividing factors between us and treasure hunters. Mm -hmm. Is as archaeologists, we never sell any of the objects that we. Uh, that we acquire. We never break apart the assemblages as best we can. We want to keep as much of that intact. Mm -hmm. And definitely within the last uh, 20 years or so, um, kind of the model has been developing for conservation of these sites, but in situ, meaning in the place that you find them. And so oftentimes these wrecks have already gone through their period of degradation and destruction, and they've achieved equilibrium mm -hmm. uh, with the surrounding salts and the other sediments in this underwater world and pulling things up off the ocean floor after so long, there's a lot of work you have to do to make sure it doesn't just degrade and fall apart on the surface. Is there, is there a point where they stop degrading? Um, the, there, well, there is. Uh, you can do conservation methods, like have active methods yourself that you can stop some of these processes from happening, mm -hmm. depending on if it's, if it's woods or metals or whatnot. Um, you, generally, if it's an organic thing, it can uh, just disappear one day. It's going to have a slow rate until that happens. Mm -hmm. so, um, so, if you're, so if you're talking about conserving them where they are and letting the shipwreck lie. Is there is there a movement towards like underwater museums or trails or something we like that? We actually have seen some of that and Charles is did some of his work in Florida, but they, they really pioneered a lot of what they call either shipwreck trails or yeah. heritage yeah. trails. They've done a lot of, uh, Florida's kind of spearheaded this. Also, Turks and Caicos has also what's called shipwreck trails. And basically what that is, is archeologists have come along, Researched these shipwrecks, built basically a, a, tour, a heritage tourism industry around it with local scuba diving shops and whatnot, mm -hmm. and having locals go out with tourists to look at these trails. And basically what these trails are is you take a scuba diving group, you go dive on one shipwreck, there might be a plaque down there, there's a mooring line for the, sh for the boat so they don't have to drop an anchor to damage the shipwreck itself. Mm -hmm. And they get to experience history as it is, as it is in situ. Um, Florida is special because... It has legislation where the actual community near these shipwrecks has to submit an actual application to the state asking to have this happen. So the state has to wait for the community to become involved first before it acts on making any type of shipwreck tra uh, trail. That sounds hard. It is. It is difficult because there's so much water out there. Mm -hmm. It is amazing. And if you're trying to protect all these ships in, in their original locations, you can't really have a monitoring crew that's going around making sure these aren't getting looted or destroyed or mm -hmm. other things are happening. And so you need the public. You, what we do depends on them to be kind of stewards of this heritage themselves. Mm -hmm. And they have to know it's there first, but yeah, they have to be able to connect with it in some, some way. Mm. So we hope to be able to do more stuff like that with our work. But well, I certainly think that would be a great thing to have here in the Bahamas as the, as the home base of piracy. Right? <laughs> there's, there's a lot of history here. There's a lot of wrecks here. Uh, there's been a lot of looting in this area for many, many years. And uh, part of the work that we're hoping to do is to kind of get the public more involved and interested mm -hmm. to know what's going on and the big differences between doing an archaeological research project and then a for-profit venture where you're intending on selling anything mm -hmm. you find. Uh, but once something is sold, it's it's lost. It's gone forever. It goes to private hands. Now let's talk. Let's talk a little bit about that. So treasure hunting. Um, when you when you start looking into uh, uh, 
water aquatic adventure, let's say, mm-hmm. you, you, you do start coming across uh, memoirs by treasure hunters sure. or books by treasure hunters. And, and, they're, and they're in the science section. They're presented like they're, uh, you know, documented text of, of some accurate thing that happened. But a lot of them also involve open chest shirts and machine guns. <laughs> so one, one has to wonder if, if all that's true. Now, is, is treasure hunting... Uh, are treasure hunters bad guys? Like, what? How, how does this work? Or, or yeah, I mean, that, that's a good question. It, it, it would be bad to try and say all treasure hunters are bad people. Uh, mm-hmm. I think a lot of this comes down to education and just knowing more about what's going on down there and what can be done as the alternative. Um, but there are some groups that are kind of known for destroying a lot of sites or having a lot of real negative impacts in society. You might call them generally bad guys. Mm-hmm. But I think for a lot of it, it's people interested in, in history and the material world and getting to kind of be involved with it. Uh, the problem has been this popularized idea of what it means to be a treasure hunter. Mm-hmm. And that it's not only an okay stigma to go to a shipwreck that might have been a grave site or it's public remains that belong 100% to the public, but they're going to privatize it for profit, mm-hmm. um, you, you kind of start to, you can see the problems with those methods because it's so expensive to work on the water on these boats mm-hmm. and they have to pay for it. Uh, so we live on grants and public support and things like that and they live on uh, sales of the artifacts and for-profit types of media. And so you get two very different approaches where you just can't spend the time needed to research a site uh, if you're driven by, I got to find the next valuable thing and get off this site as soon as possible to save money. So gone are the days of the American government coming to your classroom and saying, Dr. Henry Jones, here's a blank check. We need to meet the Nazis. <laughs> well, I'm still hoping. Yeah. <laughs> that blank check can show up anytime, government, if you're listening. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah, um, it's it's got to be something much more publicly engageable that mm-hmm. people can really connect with it. Otherwise, it's just a bunch of stuffy archaeologists talking to each other. Oh, yeah, but what, what, what are archaeologists like? I'm, I'm not familiar <laughs> with, with y'all. <laughs> oh. Oh, they probably hit all gamuts, I guess. Yeah. You know, you get, and there's so many different types of archaeologists. Uh, a lot shapes of the, and sizes. <laughs> shapes <laughs> and sizes. Um, a lot of the underwater ones came out of either diving backgrounds or uh, some of the field kind of got started by the first treasure hunters and by people like Jacques Cousteau mm-hmm. uh, going down, looking at sites and, and looting at least, or at least trying to salvage and see what they can, that they can learn. Um, but this was kind of before we really had a science around it about how to even excavate a shipwreck and control it. So things have changed a lot over the years. Things have definitely yeah. changed a lot over the years. And, and terrestrial archaeologists, those who usually work on land, what we mm-hmm. think of as an archaeologist, uh, they differ dramatically depending on where in the world they work, if it's historical or if it's ancient materials. Mm-hmm. Or you also have to remember that uh, underwater archaeology as a discipline is only roughly 50 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very relatively new. Uh, we've only, in the last 30 or so years, really based a methodology that we may agree somewhat on upon how we do things together as a group. And then even under with our underwater archaeology, it's been subdivided into sub-disciplines. Mm-hmm. There's what's called maritime archaeology, nautical archaeology, differences in how we as archaeologists interact with the past and understand it and analyze it and then re-give it out to the public of how we see these things. So are you are you are you all underdogs in this game or Underdogs is in like underwater in general, or, with the <laughs> or no? I like that. <laughs> Dogs underwater. Uh, underdogs when it comes to protecting underwater cultural heritage versus treasure hunters. Well, I suppose so. Like, is is it like because you guys are so new? Mm-hmm. Um, do you have the support that you need, or is or are you just fine? It's uh, no, we're not fine. We're not. I would say that. Yeah, yeah, we need much more funds and much more public interest and in all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're definitely out. 
Uh, outfunded, outgunned, outclassed, outnumbered. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of nautical archaeologists in the world, yeah, and the projects right. are fairly fairly specialized. Mm -hmm. And so, hearing of it can be a you know a big remarkable new thing, but it's not something that everybody connects to. Yeah. But people have heard stories of treasure hunting, or they might have even known someone that's gone to a wreck site or found something before, pulled some off the seafloor. And, mm -hmm. and I think we're definitely underdogs in the public media sense, where I, I love the pirate movies and the treasure hunting stories just as much as the next, especially growing up. But it wasn't until you started to realize kind of the ethical problems that go along with looting heritage. And none of us would allow someone to go in and loot your, your mother's grave and just to take her earrings or her wedding ring mm -hmm. and say that that's okay. But, but that's kind of what we say with underwater stuff. If it's below the surface, we can ignore it. Hmm. And that, I think that, that message has to get out a little further and, and have people realize how much is down there. Well, let's talk about, on that note, let's talk about converging worlds, because you, 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 you do have a shipwreck that you guys are going to investigate, Highborn Key. Uh, the ship identity, I imagine, is un, unknown. Yeah, we would just refer to it in the, the work as the Highborn Key shipwreck. Okay. And that's kind of where it claimed the label, because it's right off the coast of Highborn Key here a while back. But. Mm -hmm. And you, and, but I, I, the interesting thing to me about your project is that you are attempting to do this in a more ethical way than has been done in the past. Well, we are certainly trying to take into account some things that we feel need to be taken into account of when mm -hmm. excavating a wreck. Yep. And in this case, we're talking about the, uh, the coral reef that has grown on top. And so often when a ship goes down, it provides a perfect habitat for corals to grow. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a raised surface. It's got a solid substrate corals can bond to. And shipwrecks become batteries, small batteries when they're underwater. Mm. As stuff is corroding, it's releasing electrons. And electrons begin flowing around this site from different metals and different objects. So you get what's called a galvanic cell, and you can, you can uh, record the amount, this really low current amount happening right around the site as things are corroding. Well, some corals love that and respond very well to that kind of stimulus, and so it creates this perfect environment for corals to grow on. Mm -hmm. And while corals, they're endangered, they're, they're slow-growing things, but uh, there's not going to be any other 16th century shipwrecks or any other uh, new archaeological material from the past. Like, what we have is what we have. And so it's that really sticky ground of, well, if we need to excavate a shipwreck, if it's in uh, remarkable historical significance or it's in jeopardy, do we justify destroying the coral reef in the process of getting that cultural heritage? And in the past, that's usually where we've gone with it. Uh, but we're trying something new. We're trying to be able to drop an artificial reef. Uh, we have a local Bahamian sculptor, Andret John. He's going to help us uh, make something pretty cool and drop that artificial reef and transfer the polyps and even some of the whole corals if we can to this artificial reef to at least provide an environment for that reef to continue to thrive in that area before we start excavating that shipwreck. Wow. So it sounds like, so, so, this, so, you, so you all are not the first people to visit this site? No, we're not. Um, there's probably a lot more people that have visited than we'll, we'll know, that mm -hmm. we ever know. Um, but back in 1965, I believe, when it was first found, it was a couple of free divers, so father and son, uh, and they found the wreck and they got the permits for it. You could see cannons and anchors on top. It's only about 25 feet deep, so mm -hmm. it was a very reasonable site to work. Uh, but they contacted the Smithsonian and they had a gentleman come out and work with them. Again, this is kind of before the era of scientific nautical archaeology, so to speak. Mm -hmm. You know, this was still very much what you did. The best you could do was to go and get the Smithsonian and have them work with you. Like the Wild West of nautical archaeology. It was very much the Wild West, yeah. yeah. And uh, Mendel Peterson, the guy from the Smithsonian, he contacted some other well-known treasure hunters, guys mm -hmm. like Teddy Tucker that you might hear names of that are kind of famous. Uh, but they, they lifted all the artifacts that they could see, essentially all the cannons and all the anchors and everything. And we still don't know where they all ended up. Uh, some... One or two of the cannons went to the Smithsonian and another to the Newport News 
uh, Maritime Museum. Mm. Um, but, but they were removed from the Bahamas. Yes, but they were taken out of the Bahamas, and as far as we know, they're lost. So we're considering them gone artifacts. We're not sure if they got any conservation either, and stuff degrades very quickly if you don't protect it. So, oh. so how, does, how does an artifact like that get lost? Well, that's that's the good question. Um, but if you lift something up from the seafloor and you own it, well, you can do what you like with it mm -hmm. if you have that permit. Uh, so it can be sold all over the place and it can just transfer hands. Um, but generally, we don't have a big record of all artifacts ever bought and sold or where they transfer to. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times treasure hunters don't want to share that information with you. Um, so it, it, once it disappears in that private realm, it becomes very difficult to track. Wow. Does any of this, does any of this money, does the government or the country see any of this money when this happens? Uh, I think it depends on the country. Um, in Florida, there is, they, they have permitting laws that you can do treasure hunting. So it's still legal in the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think they work on a model that is a 30-70 model, where the treasure hunters will receive 70% and the government will receive 30 okay. of the artifacts. Um, which, there's, there's a caveat with that, however. But yeah. Although on the books for Florida, they still allow treasure hunting technically because the law has itself hasn't changed, that doesn't necessarily mean whether or not there's actually new treasure hunting happening. Um, the state has a lot of regulations now. A lot of archaeologists, underwater archaeologists, work for the state well, as well, and those people overhead, head, oversee permits for these type of things nowadays. So you don't see it now as much in Florida as you did way, 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, just, just to yeah, no, that, that's a very, very good point to make. And, and yeah, I don't really think there's a good model that you can have with a treasure hunting model. At mm -hmm. some point, you are you're selling off these things that are public heritage that everybody should be able to enjoy, look at, go to a museum, study, that kind of thing. Uh, but you lose that at the end of it. Mm -hmm. So there must be, so there's a large black market? There is. The antiquities, uh, the black market of the antiquities is a very large market. And it's one of these things that is fueling a lot of other illicit markets as well. And mm -hmm. so it's one thing to kind of look at this as kind of a romantic way and think it's just one coin, it's just one whatever it might be. But when you look at where the money goes and who buys these things and where most of the antiquities are being sold, we're funding terrorism groups and sex trafficking and illegal arms trading. And they're all kind of related to this underground market where they carry a lot of value antiquities. And yet we think it's always an underground market in the sense that no one can see it. And yet, but the thing about these underground markets is a lot of these artifacts, especially from underwater, will reach known auction houses. So these other types of ones mm -hmm. in New York and whatnot will have large auctions for large amount of artifacts, even now, that are from shipwrecks. And they are legally sold, and they then disappear into the private market. Wow. As long as you have a permit saying the provenience of the objects you have, you legally got, and you know where it came from, mm -hmm. then Sotheby's can auction that off. It's not trading illicitly in these antiquities. But as lots of studies have kind of shown in the past, people are more than happy to look the other way during certain things to sell certain objects. Or sometimes the treasure hunters themselves will loot multiple sites in an area and then claim they all came from one site they have a permit to. Mm -hmm. And so you start getting so much jumbled stuff, it's really hard to pull out the truth. Now, it's, it's, now speaking about permits, it seems like the person with the permit has all the power here. And uh, now the, the Bahamas recently legalized treasure hunting? Is well, that true? that's one thing yeah, we'd like to actually talk about. Um, so the Bahamas put a moratorium on salvage permits. Essentially, mm -hmm. no one could get one. They just stopped issuing them. Mm -hmm. um, but they wrote legislation in 2012 to go ahead and repeal that and start issuing out treasure hunting permits. Um, from what I've heard, they were modeling themselves off of kind of the, the Florida model about we'll take a certain percent and they'll take a certain percent. Um, but this was done four or five years ago. Uh, but to the best of my knowledge, it hasn't gone into action yet. Mm -hmm. So I know a lot of permits, about 20 permits, have already been uh, submitted to be able to uh, loot different shipwreck sites or at least go survey and things. 
Uh, and they've got some laws they're putting there, like requiring archaeologists are on site and whatnot, but not every archaeologist is as ethical as the next, and so we've seen that model kind of go south a couple times. Uh, but if we could do one real thing with this project, it would be get the, get the public in the know about the importance of this and that you already own it. It's in your backyard. You own 100% of it. It can be a sustainable long-term revenue bringer for tourism, for getting uh, local schools and local companies kind of invested in this material. Uh, but since that legislation is kind of stalled and they're waiting on a few of these caveats to, to get it going, if we could do a good archaeological project and, and really show that we can do a lot of work out here, I think enough public voice could get that, uh, that motto to change and keep that moratorium or even take any salvage permits off the books for good. Uh, but there's still a lot of treasure hunting going on in the Bahamas that we never know about. Mm -hmm. And some guys have talked about uh, in some public articles saying, I know of shipments of artifacts that are being sent out you know, just within the last few years, and they go to Switzerland and they get sold at auction houses and provenience is made up, I'm sure, because it's illegal to excavate mm -hmm. here. So, yeah, for, for, the listen, for the listeners at home, what is provenience? Oh, provenience, excuse me. Uh, it just is talking about uh, the location of where you found that object. Mm -hmm. And so there's provenance and provenience. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of the history of the artifact, either since it went down until it was rediscovered, or from where you actually found it, that site. Mm -hmm. So if I found a, an astrolabe on the highborn key wreck, uh, that would be part of its provenience. An important sentence in archaeology is context matters. Mm. That's what Nicholas is getting at with provenience. Yeah, and that's a really good point to make because a lot of times we are thought of as the Indiana Jones model mm -hmm. where the object itself is what an archaeologist is interested in. Sometimes it's chasing you down a tunnel. <laughs> Sometimes you have to run away from a giant ball. Uh, but that's that's really not what archaeologists do. That's what an antiquarian does. Someone mm. very interested in antiques or, or artifacts like that. But or a treasure hunter. Or treasure hunters because they <laughs> hold individual value. Where our value is, is in the context of where that artifact was found associated with other objects. Mm -hmm. And so that whole shipwreck site and how it's spilled and how it's changed and degraded through time, if the shipwreck hasn't been uh, messed with by humans, we can undo a lot of those processes by looking at this in a very specific level so we can know how it went down, uh, know more about the site itself or what the crew tried to do to save it. Mm -hmm. You can start to kind of undo and see the human behavior and the people within it. But the relationship of the art artifacts to themselves is what matters context. Mm -hmm. The artifact itself, without knowing where it came from, and not everything has you know inscriptions on it or symbols or something, you need to know what it was related to to know that much about the artifact. Yeah, and I, I, I recall a case from a couple of years ago where, uh, where they found a, was it 900-year-old corpse of a Native American? Is this? Oh, you, oh you, uh, the Kennewick Man. The Kennewick Man. Yes, yeah. yes, a very famous guy. He's actually 9,000 years old. Oh. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I think he was dated to about 7,000 BC, mm -hmm. um, one of the earliest intact humans we have in North America. And this was a kind of a wake-up call for a lot of archaeologists, but we still have this conflict in our, in our discipline where uh, the skeleton washed out of the Columbia River in Washington State. And uh, right away, there were several Native American groups that are all occupying that area or have ancestry in that area that connected to this uh, human burial. Mm. They, they knew it was part of their ancestry. They believe they've been in this land as long as he's been around. Uh, they, they have some rights over their burial rights, and they believe that you don't uncover, and if it ever becomes uncovered, a body, uh, you go through a process and you rebury it immediately. You don't expose it to study and to breaking pieces off or anything like that because it's a very well sanctified thing. Uh, for the archaeologist, it was a remarkable find and something wholly unique that could tell us a lot about us and Native Americans and the peopling of the New World and, and all of these kind of big questions. Mm -hmm. uh, but then you had two groups, one saying, we need to do the science 
and we need to keep this body in a lab and study it and all of this because it's so unique. And the other group saying, this is our past, this is our family, and he belongs to us. You need to give him back so that we can rebury him. Mm -hmm. um, and this kind of led to some laws within the United States, such as NAGPRA, uh, which is the Native American Graves and Repatriation Act. Um, but uh, it was a turning point in our field to recognize that we had to be much more open about working with local groups, working with Native Americans, respecting the borders and boundaries of other people. Mm -hmm. But still not every archaeologist still believes that. Some are still very science first. There's a resistance to that. There is, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, I think when you spend enough time in a lab and enough time with books in your nose, you start to really believe that the best thing you can do is objective study. Mm -hmm. um, but once you, like what, doing what we're doing now, coming out into the Bahamas to, to meet the groups and the people that could all help and make this worthwhile, you start to see that and you remember that archaeologists are public servants. Mm. We work on public funds. Generally, it's all tax dollars or donated money. And this is all public material, and we're not owning or profiting from any of that. So we have to work with the people. Mm. And that's where the real value is. That's how you make the most impact. Mm. But a lot of people don't necessarily do archaeology like that. They just don't see the world that way. They think there's too much bias if you're working with locals or something. Oh, that's it. It's a bias. Like, like you, like, it's almost like there's a resistance of sentiment. Yeah, um, so many Native American groups would survive on oral histories, and that's mm -hmm. how they defined themselves and told about the past and educated their the future. Um, but an oral history isn't something that we can point to mm -hmm. and say, this document is X years old or, or whatever. Uh, and that's been one of the big problems for a lot of these Native American groups is they can't either demonstrate their deep history or they can't show you that what we're telling you about our past and who our ancestors were and what they did is true. Mm -hmm. We know it from our oral histories. But the average archaeologist, well, they can't put that in a citation per se and have mm -hmm. it be trusted. So they tend to avoid working with them um, for just lack of being able to be sure. See, that seems like such an antiquated sentiment. Do you it think, really do, is. Do you think that, that <laughs> continues today? No, I mean, what Nicholas is talking about is, was, is the history of our discipline. Um, like he said, we weren't having a conversation with the locals and their history and their ancestors. Now, after NAGPRA and, what, and a lot of things have changed in the last 10 to 20 years, that a lot more archaeologists are starting to realize they need to have a conversation with the locals, with the actual people whose heritage they're working with. Mm -hmm. And so there is a lot of positive outcomes that have come out of a lot of these acts, these laws, and with local groups and academic archaeologists themselves going out of their way, like we, me and Nick are doing right now, mm -hmm. talking to local groups, showing that their heritage is their heritage, and it's a shared thing, and that we're only here to help and not here to take things away or trying to hinder the local individuals from reconnecting with their own heritage. Yeah, but there is still a lot of a lot of sentiment that goes both ways, mm -hmm. where uh, a lot of archaeologists don't work with the local groups, those Native Americans, and the Native Americans don't necessarily want to work with the archaeologists because they're usually not respected or trusted mm -hmm. in the same way. So it has improved dramatically, it, it and not is, to make it sound too dark, but there still is plenty of work that needs to be improved upon. It is a process. That's yeah. all we can say. It's about a maturation, it. you could say. Mm -hmm. We're getting there. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, so you guys, again, are doing a lot of work in order to avoid some of these pitfalls and sort of preserve the science for future generations. Could you, could you talk a little bit about, uh, about Andret and the art involved coming up here? Yeah, and we're really excited that he's uh, willing to help us out and do all this, but he's worked on a variety of different sculptures and some artificial reefs that he's done some beautiful things. If any of you have ever been out to the Clifton Heritage National Park, you can see uh, a lot of work, including a, a, a 15, 20-foot tall statue called Apollo that's holding up the ocean, um, <laughs> and, uh, and Andret's work himself. Of, uh, he's built several masks and faces around the area. Yeah, 
And you can see a lot of his stuff either yeah, on his Facebook pages or things, but also just locally. He's got some artwork all over. Mm -hmm. uh, but very talented guy. Um, but yeah, because he's willing to help us do this, we're going to get um, to kind of infuse some artistic and local cultural work into that reef, that artificial reef site. And uh, at this point, we don't have the funds for uh, full conservation of the shipwreck materials out of the water. Mm -hmm. And we would need a museum as well to be able to put those things afterwards. Both those processes are expensive and time consuming. Um, so the plan as we go with what we talked about earlier is uh, this conservation in situ model where we can uh, measure and document and record these timbers as best we can. Mm -hmm. uh, but then we put them back underwater where they're already at equilibrium with that environment. So they're not going to degrade more. Uh, but then we would have a, a kind of a small enclosure that would have the timbers and other artifacts we've dug up and this sculpture that's the artificial reef and it can still act as kind of a diving tourist attraction or mm -hmm. it's a place to come and see there'll be signs to read about the history etc and so if we can it's 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 less about trying to get the archaeology out of there and make sure you can't see anything mm -hmm. but remembering that the place and all of the objects associated with it are all all related and all public. That's, that's kind of the whole goal, at least. So what's next for you guys in achieving, achieving this goal? What, what are you up to this week? <laughs> you know, oh, yeah, the immediate things, <laughs> yeah. right? Immediate things. Uh, like, yes. what is involved in, in starting something of this magnitude? Well, this has been something I started in 2012. Mm. And this is actually when I first met you and your wonderful family here at the Orchard Garden Hotel helped support us. And uh, I had very little money when I first came. And pretty much was just kind of a pie in the sky idea. Mm -hmm. uh, but you start networking and you start talking to people and you start writing grants and getting out to the sites and trying to get exposure and get your work kind of known, your goals. Uh, and hopefully throughout that process, you're starting to build and put groups together. And so we were kind of revisiting a lot of the people we've met in the past that have been happy to help, uh, but we're still kind of locking down our uh, research vessel, our RV that we'll be working off of for the time period. We'll be going out to Highborn Key Island, and the uh, the caretakers of the marina have been excellent and so helpful. Uh, so we're hoping that they can kind of uh, help us get some of the logistics organized. Uh, we'll have anywhere between eight and maybe 16 people kind of coming for about a six-week period over this summer uh, to be doing this work. And so trying to make sure they all have food to eat and beds to sleep in and, and the work can all get safely done as possible. Yeah, it's lots of little boxes to check, I sure. guess you could say. Sure. It sounds like funding is a little difficult to come by in these situations. How exactly did you guys achieve it, and, and who's backing you? Yeah, certainly. Great question. Funding has, is the one thing that we need. Uh, doing what we do is very expensive, and then all the post-processing work, all the analysis and conservation is very expensive. Um, but we were fortunate enough to get funded by the National Geographic Society, and they have a grant. Who? <laughs> this small group you may have heard of. Uh, but they have a conservation trust, which is a set of grants to allow some um, natural or cultural conservation. And uh, they were fortunate enough to select us, so they gave us a big chunk of change for this as well. Uh, but also the Institute of Nautical Archaeology supported us. Uh, they have a Claude Dutuis Archaeology Grant, kind of a, an endowment that funds this work regularly from one of their uh, predecessors. Um, but between that and some smaller groups, some with Texas A&M and uh, the Center for Maritime Archaeology and Conservation, uh, the Explorers Club, um, they've all been very helpful in getting us this far at least. But, but it's all been soft money and uh, the grants are getting fewer and further between. Uh, so yeah, the more that we can kind of build a sustainable endowment bases or get interested people or get public works where this stuff is going on. Yeah, it's, it's what we need for the future. So eventually, will you be accepting public donations from any Tom, Dick, and Harry? Absolutely, yes. Well, right now, donations can be done through the Institute of Nautical Archaeology. It's a 501c3, probably the one of the biggest, best, and oldest groups that does nautical archaeology in the world. Mm -hmm. um, also, we are affiliated with the Institute for Maritime History out of Florida. 
um, but they're all both 501c3s. And like I said, if it's in the future, uh, we hope to have our own as well, that, that these donations will be put into kind of a big endowment that will just draw off the interest, but can help fund people like us doing work like this to get others educated and, and more archaeology done, I guess. Um, just being here and just rekindling all of our relationships is what's super important because we want all of the human people to know that what we're doing. Um, we want to have more relationships with these groups and let them should come out and work with us and actually touch their own heritage and know that this is something that we want to stay in the Bahamas. Mm -hmm. So how could somebody get involved in this if they were interested in supporting you guys and the efforts of uh, shipwrecks and archaeology in the Bahamas? Well, certainly. Um, contact us, absolutely, and we can get you involved in any way, shape, and form. Um, we have a Facebook page called the Highborn Key Excavation Page. Um, you can write me, Nicholas Budsberger, Charles Bendick, um, and we can send, give our email contacts and things as well if we need. But um, we would love to get as many volunteers as we can. Uh, it'll just be limited on the space on the boat and the space on the island. Mm -hmm. uh, but there will be lots of work to do in a short period of time. And we really hope to get a lot of local voices interested in this. And oh, yeah. So more work like this can be done. We'd love to be doing field schools and linking up with the College of the Bahamas and some other local groups. Um, but especially if you're interested in maybe the museum and conservation aspect of this, keeping this project alive, uh, we've got a great place for a future museum here in Nassau. Mm -hmm. um, we know it could be a big, uh, profitable thing for the industry for uh, many, many years and probably outweigh any benefits from treasure hunting that would ever come from sales of artifacts. Uh, so, yeah, well, we hope to be here for a while doing a lot of this work, but... Feel free to get in contact with us directly, and we're happy to do it. Yeah. What's that? What's that email address? Oh, sure. Uh, N zero one mm -hmm. B U D S B E R G. My first initial zero one Budsberg at t a m u dot e d u. That's our official email address. But you can get a hold of us there. Uh, we hope to spiral this, uh, to turn this work into a, a future nonprofit as well, as I'll be graduating here fairly soon and. Uh, I'd like to stay out here in the Bahamas and the rest of the Caribbean working on these these ships, but also getting local education and local groups involved so that we don't have to send archaeologists from Texas A&M to go study these sites, but we have people here in the Bahamas contacting us saying, gosh, we got these great shipwrecks, artifacts, sites we want to work and, and kind of build this to be a bigger thing and maybe one day end treasure hunting. We'll be checking back in with the crew of the Converging Worlds Project as they make advances towards their final goal. Uh, thank you two for joining us. Thank, thank you, you, sir. Thank you for having us. And um, don't drown, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> yeah.